And I'm Dan. Welcome back to 15-Minute Film Fanatics. You know how the podcast works. This week is my pick, 1959's Anatomy of a Murder, directed by Otto Preminger and, of course, starring the immortal Jimmy Stewart. Um, I typically like um, the shorter movies, or I, I, I like some of the formal elements of movies limited to 90 minutes in now. I joke with, with Dan about that all the time. Um, but this is this may be my longest pick for the podcast yet. Um, I made Dan watch it. I begged him to watch it. Dan, I know you just saw it. Go. I'm so glad I saw it. When you look at the reviews, when you scroll through user reviews on IMDb, you and I have this perverse pleasure in reading one-star reviews for movies we really love and books we really love. And I had the same pleasure here because I think if you complain about this movie and you call it boring, then you don't get it. This movie is about so much more than just the verdict. And I think it's great because some of the courtroom tropes that it delivers are, are right out of Hollywood things. Like you have the underdog lawyer and the city slicker. You have um, the surprise witness, but we get two of them. We get Dwayne Miller and then Mary Pallant. We get the nail-biting verdict. Like you really don't know how it's going to go right until the last five minutes. You've got things like an objection. No, I'll sustain it. Or overruled, like all the courtroom stuff that we thought that that's what all lawyers did when we were kids. Um, but we also get things that we're wholly unused to in a courtroom drama, Right. Like, for example, an unlikable defendant, um, a lack of real closure about what really happened. It's never a question for us that, you know, it's, it's ambiguous because it, Ben Gazzara is not Tom Hanks. You know, it's, we wonder what he's guilty of. So the film kind of delivers what we want and then undermines it at the same time. And that's what's so unsettling and what's make, what makes the movie so great. It's worth saying that all the procedural drama uh, in this movie, it came from an actual a case, which was written about by uh, Robert Traver, who's um, that's a pseudonym for a guy who actually was on the Michigan State Bar and then retired to write full time, partially based on the success of uh, of this novel, which became this film. So it, some of the hokiness is a little bit undercut by by the reality of the procedural here. And I think that is also held in the ambiguity of the procedural. It, we expect if you see a movie where about an underdog lawyer, you expect that for the eight, first 89 and a half minutes that every objection that he makes will be overruled until, until that final thing that he just wants to get in and then they win. Um, and that's not how this works here. This is, you know, this is like penalties called in a very close game, um, you know, by, by indifferent referees where, you know, someone looks like they're scoring points and then the other side looks like they're scoring points. And part of, part of the reality of the procedural, I think, is what appeals to me. Um, I will also say that this movie's like 2.45, maybe yeah. almost three hours, and it, it feels like a 90-minute movie to me. Yes. That, it, that, that's, that's how I experience it. Uh, as especially, when, especially in the last hour and a half when the, when the trial really, really picks up steam. I mean, you, you really, really want to see. It's funny what you said about the underdog lawyer because that is, you know, Jimmy Stewart as the underdog lawyer. That's, you know, that's like, you know, he's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, you know, part two. Um, so the, I think the movie teases you with that. George C. Scott is so good as the, you know, dancer. His name is even Dancer, the dancing around the, you know, the big shot from, from Lansing. He's really great. But there's what occurred to me when I watched it was, well, who's on trial? When we first meet Lee Remick, when we first meet Mrs. Mannion, right? And, you know, the first thing I thought was, well, she seems very cheerful for someone that's gone through this trauma of being raped and her husband murdered somebody. And then you meet Ben Gazzara, who doesn't really garner our sympathy at all. In, in 99 other movies, um, a guy shooting the rapist would automatically get the, the audience's sympathy. Um, they wouldn't have to work so hard. But in this movie, it's, it's so different. And then, then you ask yourself, well, it shouldn't matter. 
It shouldn't matter how I respond to Ben Gazzara or how Jimmy Stewart responds to Lee Remick. Like, what's the case about? And so I think that the movie complicates. It uses our own our own reactions to make the case more complicated. I have more to say about that in my scenes. Let's jump to part two and I'll kick it off. Great. So in part two, we talk about our favorite moments in this film. Mike, what's yours? So my... Uh, mine is when Jimmy Stewart does his lawyer visits the, his defendant in prison and has to lead him into uh, a, a plea of insanity because clearly he shot this guy in cold blood and their their argument is for justification, which of course is not a legal argument. And that I think is the embodiment of all the things that you just said at the end of part one, which is about the ambiguity of the law, um, our ambiguous feelings about Jimmy Stewart uh, as the lawyer, our ambiguous feelings about the defendant and the victim. Um, you know, it, which is that the, the, the husband, uh, the murderer in this case, the defendant is the most unlikable character, uh, in the movie. Uh, he's, he's extremely violent. Um, he's slick, he's standoffish. Uh, he's, his anger simmers in every single line. You're not surprised to see him suddenly lash out or to find out that his wife is afraid of him because that, that's the, the kind of aura that he gives off. It's nonetheless Jimmy Stewart's job to get him off and to help him understand how the law might be manipulated, but in the cause of justice. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's never a doubt, or I'm sorry, that's wrong. It's it's doubtful about how she got the black eye. That's right. The implication being that no matter what happened, that he probably that he probably beat up on her. And so he is to the viewer guilty. He's guilty from the start. And you said, it was funny, you said that justification for, for his murder is not a legal argument. Now, what's funny is that it's a movie argument. It's, it's, a, it's a theatrical argument. It's a, it's a literary argument. And uh, some movies exploit that. You think of a movie like Death Wish or something, you know, and some movies take that a little, you know, maybe like you could even think about like, you know, The Dark Knight. Like we're okay with vigilanteism done in the right way to the right kind of people. But this movie is a lot, lot, a lot different because you can't get your facts straight. We know that the people that Batman goes after are bad guys, capital B, capital G. But here, you, you, don't, you don't really know. Like, like did the guy that Ben Gazzara killed, did, did he rape or do? Well, is that why he burned the tried to burn the panties? Well, we don't know. Well, and, and part of it here is that there's no flashback, which is which is great. I think any other film would have fallen back on the crush of, yes. crush of the flashback, so that we could get a good judgment call on the person who was killed and see for ourselves. But here, we're we are part of the jury in the sense that the only thing that we know about the murdered is what we know by hearsay from other people. Yes, we never even see the murder victim, except in, in, in photographs of, of his corpse. We never get a sense of those kinds of things. And therefore we can't get that feeling of superiority or we don't know where to, where to put our loyalties on. My moment was when we first meet Lee Remick, who, who's so, so phenomenal in this movie. Or not, I'm sorry, not when we first meet her, but when she goes to Jimmy Stewart's office and she's flirting with him and, and he's, he's trying to be very formal. And she says, oh, you can call me Laura. And then she, she talks about how men look at her. And she says to Jimmy Stewart, you're doing it to me right now. And of course, the viewer is doing the same kind of thing. And she says, it's okay. And we don't think that Jimmy Stewart is being, uh, you know, lecherous or something, but she's certainly a strikingly, you know, attractive woman. And we're looking at her playing with the dog. She gives the dog a beer. So we're kind of like trying to pin her down. But legally, it shouldn't matter what kind of person she is. And that the, the viewer is constantly asked to reevaluate the viewer's opinion. Because let's say she is a flirt. It doesn't matter. It, it, you know, that certainly doesn't justify something horrible like being raped. But does that explain why her husband was so controlling of her? And so, and so, so there's all these question marks. And as the movie goes on, you just get more of them. 
there's a there's a second trial going on outside the frame of the first trial, yes. which is that they are being tried by the jury of the viewer uh, for their sympathy, and then there's a separate formal legal trial going on inside of it. And it's it's interesting that both of our scenes mirror one another because it's Jimmy Stewart does the flirtation scene of superiority with uh, the husband that ends in the game of, well, you don't know the law as good as I do. So let's, let's see just how smart you are, you know? And then he does the same, he does the same flirtation back to back with the wife now, cause he's got to go interview her. And that those are part of the trial by viewer, which again is, is outside of the trial by jury. That's, that's the inside nugget of the film. Yeah, the film is called, it's funny, it's called Anatomy of a Murder, which is about as sexy a title as you can get, but it's really not an anatomy of a murder. Like, there's no forensics in it. It's not about how the murder, it's, a, it's, an, it's an anatomy of judgment. It's anatomy about how those, how judgment is made and how judgment comes to pass. Which, which again, is achieved by leaving the central mystery out, right? This, this is not trying to figure out if it was Professor Plum uh, in the library with the candlestick. They're like, now nah, it was this guy at this time in front of a bunch of witnesses with this gun that we now have that's got his fingerprints on. But once that information is given out, the only other information that matters and the only information that should matter is like, what kind of guy was he? What happened right before the murder? What, what, what actually happened in the circumstances as opposed to giving you the circumstances and leading you uh, into the facts of the case? They're just gonna give you the facts of the case and then the normal minutia in any other mystery becomes the essence of the film. All right, let's talk about the verdict in part three. Okay, so welcome back to part three. Of course, we like to talk about the ending, the title, the big takeaways. Dan. So the jury finds the defendant. The jury finds the defendant. I want to think about that word find. It's a finding, right? The jury in a case never says the defendant is guilty or the defendant is innocent. It's the jury finds this and I think that word find, that's something that popped into my head when I was watching this, is that you don't get, you can't get the truth, capital T. You can get it, you can find, I find that it's this, or I find that it's that. And based upon what we see, the jury finds that he's not guilty by reason of insanity. That ties into what Jimmy Stewart, when he says, people are many things, right? And in this film, you get to see people who are many things. We are not used to that in, in Professor Plum did it with the candlestick in the library, right? But people are many things, and that's what we see here. It's a finding, but it's not the truth. In fact, to launch off of that, the, the, the most interesting fact at the end of the movie is a reversal of what Dancer expects it to be, right? Because in movies like Clue or like something else where somebody has been killed in the library with the candlestick of Professor Plum, what the move, those movies invite us to do is to say, dear viewer, you never imagined that you could commit a murder but let me lay out some circumstances for you in which you might have been tempted to. And it's in fact appealing to the worst in the viewer and casting suspicion on a group of people so you could understand anybody could have done this. Right. Starting off with the premise of we know who did it and we think that we know why. Dancer thinks he's got him nailed because the killer had a woman upstairs who lived with him, a young woman that he grabbed from Canada and who inherited all of his property and obviously they were sleeping together. And so Dancer's conclusions come from this pessimistic view of humanity that you get in Agatha Christie. But in fact, what you find out is the guy was his illegitimate daughter. He was always good to her. He wanted to be a supportive father. And naturally she's inherited all of his property because she's the rightful heir to it. And he's gone out of his way to make sure that she gets what's coming to her in life because that's his kid. Um, and so it's, it's, the pes it's that pessimistic view that actually creates the ambiguity. 
all the circumstances seem to point that way. But the sudden reversal of, of the truth is that just like sometimes great people act uh, and terribly, sometimes otherwise terrible people uh, act nobly. Um, and that, that the nature of humanity is in fact ambiguous. And it's, it's Dancer who misunderstanding that ambiguity makes the fatal mistake and loses the case. Yeah, and and speaking of that ambiguity, of course, the fact George C. Scott's performance, which is which is also one of the one of the six or seven unbelievable performances in this in this film, is that he is not he's ambiguous too because he's he's a hot shot. He loves to hear his own voice. Um, he 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 he's bombastic and all these things, but he's also very charismatic. You could see why a jury would would listen to him because you start to listen to him as well. You really don't know which way this is going to go. You know, at the end of Agatha Christie, you're going to get the answer. Right, and that one of these eight people in front of Hercule Poirot is going to be is going to be pointed out. Here, not only do you get a, do you get a verdict which has to be a surprise either way, right? If because no matter what the verdict is, you're going to be surprised, and then you get the coda, where they skip out on the bill, and that complicates your reaction to them even more because Ben Gazzara makes a joke. He he mocks his own defense by saying, "We you know we left on a, a temp call it a temporary impulse of why we skipped off with with the bill without paying the bill." So what do you what do you make of the ending? What do you make of the coda where he skips off? It's not it's not unexpected because part of part of again the movie is about manipulation. Part of the movie when when he's leading him to plead insane is obviously they both know that he wasn't insane, but th this is the only way that I can build a case around you. It's the only way that we have a legal precedent, which is what what that's all about. And I think a lot of the film is about precedent. Yeah. You you get the sense that um, he's he's a heel. He's always been a heel. And so, you know, the, the fact that their um, trailer is gone at the end of the night is, is not a surprise to me um, as a viewer. You're meant, in fact, to, to take it, to, that since the two men take it so cheerfully um, that, you know, things have improved for them. And so it's, it's kind of happy ending by implication. They don't get paid, but they're so happy they don't care. Yeah, I, I, I could imagine somebody watching this and saying, uh, I can't believe he didn't, he, they, they skipped without paying their, their legal bills. He's not a nice person, <laughs> but he never was. So it, it confirms the worst suspicions you have about Ben Gazzara and, and I guess about Lee Remick as well. Well, but, but also to add to the ambiguity, it's, it's counterbalanced by the good intentions of all the people around him. You get the sense that this was his, what that, this was his friend and former secretary when he was the DA. And so he's kept his secretary employed and he keeps his, his alcoholic buddy around, um, which is to say that he's still the hub of their lives and that yeah. they're still in one another's lives. Um, and that's, again, that's, it's, it's seeing the, the best in people by seeing the worst in other people. And, that, and it kind of, it all comes out in the wash. And I think we see the best in people. I'll end with, uh, how great is it to watch Jimmy Stewart pretend to play the piano next to Duke Ellington? It's great. So thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed our conversation about Anatomy of a Murder. Great pick, Mike. Please follow us on Twitter at 15MINfilm. You could email us at 15minutefilm at gmail.com. Please subscribe. Please leave us ratings. And please let us know what you want us to do next. Thanks a lot, everybody. See you next time. Hi, everybody. We are so glad about the response we've had to this podcast, which we began a year ago. It's gone bigger and bigger beyond what we ever thought it would become. And we want to let you know just about a couple easy ways to support the show. Okay, so first, you can subscribe to the show so you'll never miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter at 15MINfilm. That's 15, the number, MINfilm. And you can now support the show through Venmo. If you like what we're doing, you can send us a dollar or two. Anything helps. And all the money is going to go back into the show and to upgrade our equipment.
Yeah, that's what we're going to do that to upgrade the equipment to pay for podcast hosting. And if you and if you send us anything on Venmo, let us know in the message what movies you want us to do. We take requests. We've taken requests already. We're always looking for new ideas. We love connecting with our listeners. Now at Venmo, you can send us the Venmo at 15 minute film. It's spelled out. The, the number 15 is spelled out. 15 minute film. We, we'd love to hear from you. Again, anything you want to send us would be very, very appreciated. And like Mike said, it all goes right back into the show. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Always be closing, Mike. Always be closing.